Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. So just who is the real Keir Starmer? With Labour enjoying a double-digit poll lead and a general election less than a year away, there's a good chance that Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party since 2020, will be the next Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Of course, a week is a long time in politics and a lot could happen between now and election day, whenever that is. But right now, Keir Starmer is in poll position. So it's probably worth everyone understanding a little bit more about him, why he wants to become Prime Minister and what would drive him if he were to win the keys to number 10. Well, today, the first Keir Starmer biography hits the shelves. Its author joins us in the studio. This week has given us a picture, and not a very welcome one, to be honest, of how the weeks and months ahead of that election could look. Lee Anderson has dominated the news, but he isn't the only politician to be reaching for divisive language right now. We'll look at why this is happening and where it might go. And it's less than a week to go until the budget. We can expect Jeremy Hunt to proudly claim that he has met his fiscal rules. But a new IFG paper says the Chancellor will only get there through gaming those rules and coming up with fictional spending plans. We'll speak to its author. Joining me today is my IFG colleague and reader of countless political biographies, Kath Haddon. Hi, Hello. Kath. Hi, Hannah. I'm joined by Tim Durrant, who leads our Minister's Programme. Hi, Tim. Hi, Hannah. And I'm delighted that we're joined by Tom Baldwin, the author of Keir Starmer, The Biography. Hi, Tom. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. The reviews have been landing over the last week. How is Publication Day feeling? The reviews have been very good. And I walked past my small independent bookshop this morning, small, saw a small crowd gathering and excitement <laughs> at the chance of, of finally being able to lay their hands on this book. And I was had to fight my way through them on the way here. But, um, <laughs> I mean, it's an important book about someone who is likely to be very, very important. And it's an unusual book in that political leaders in this country don't usually give this degree of access to their friends, their family, to close advisors themselves, particularly a leader as cautious as Keir Starmer in election year. So, I mean, there's a reason why he's done it, because he knows people are still asking questions about him. But I think it's a very unusual book. And I think people who have read it so far have come away with a very different impression of who he is than the one they went in with. But this wasn't always going to be a biography, was it? No, and that's part of the part of what marks him out in a way. It was originally going to be an autobiography, and I should be upfront about who I am. I'm you know, a former political journalist, then went to work for Labour Party in communications, and has since been sort of writing books and doing other things. So I'm a Labour person, and I was helping him out with writing this autobiography. But quite quickly became clear he didn't want an autobiography. He didn't feel comfortable with it in the way that he doesn't real, really feel comfortable with politics itself. He doesn't like this idea of spending 300 pages talking about how great he is. He doesn't want to be that person. And so eventually I persuaded him that a biography, not an authorised one, but an authoritative one, would help tell what is necessarily with him a complicated story, which is very difficult to get across because he himself defies definition. Kath, it is, as Tom says, pretty unusual to have a biography of this kind written before uh, a politician gets into office, becomes Prime Minister. Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, you see a lot of biographies and autobiographies towards the end of somebody's career. Oftentimes, when as a new Prime Minister or somebody who has risen, you will see shorter biographies being put out. I mean, we can all remember James Heal and Harry Cole were writing this book about Liz Truss 
as she came to power, it was going to be the story of her rise out of the blue. It quickly turned into also the story of her fall because they didn't get it out in the the short premiership that she had. You also will see a lot of politicians who will write books, particularly in opposition. Rachel Reeves obviously had her book about female economists. Uh, Lisa Nandy had her book uh, All In, which was sort of her picture of regions, how to fix Britain, how to hand back power, things like that. So there's often a lot of sort of policy things. And again, Liz Truss, Kwasi Kwarteng, memorably had a book a decade or more ago, which was talking about their sort of fiscal positions and so forth. So those kinds of books, yes, but normally biographies and so forth, not so much. It's something we see in the American system a lot more every month thinks of Barack Obama and dreams of my father, where they are trying to sort of shape a narrative about them. But I think also, as Tom said, that the unusualness of this is particularly about Keir Starmer, that it's been the criticism of him that the public don't know who he is, that people don't really understand his philosophy and so forth. And yet, as the book, I think, is revealing, there's reasons for that. So it has also sort of stated that interest in him that he himself has often felt uncomfortable giving. The chapters on Starmer's upbringing have been featured quite heavily in the the news coverage around your book, Tom, especially his relationship with his father. How much do you think that shaped him? I think it shaped him in a number of different ways. I think lots of people of that generation might find it familiar to have had a fairly distant father. I think it's a story about class in Britain in the 1970s and being working class in a small town in Surrey is very different to being working class in Bolton or Burnley. People didn't understand that Rodney Starmer was a very skilled man. They just saw him as someone who works in a factory. I think it's a story also about emotions, which is something a word we don't often associate with Keir Starmer. But you've got these very tightly bound emotions, and it's all revolving. Life in his quite cramped, ramshackle house is revolving around his very sick mother, who's in and out of hospital, often di- almost dying, and Keir, young Keir Starmer doesn't know whether she's going to come back, and he waits up all night. And a austere and frankly quite weird father wouldn't let him have a TV. Played Shostakovich really loudly, dressed in a sort of Amish style, you know, you know this sort of Amish beard without a moustache. And he didn't ever say he was proud of the young Keir. And in a way that most normal people, you know, would sort of establish a version of their childhood. Keir Starmer went through most of his life with that version of his childhood a very successful lawyer, only had to challenge it when he goes into politics, becomes a political leader, because things begin emerging because he's a political leader. So it's a very strange situation for him. You're almost sort of working out your relationship with your dad because you lead a Labour Party in the white light of publicity. And so, yeah, the, the, his dad dies and it's tough and they don't hug because they haven't hugged for years and they don't really have that last conversation. And then he's clearing out his cupboard at the back of his dad's house and he finds a scrapbook hidden with everything he had ever done cut and pasted all the newspaper cuttings written in a very neat tool making engineering father's hand never shown it to anybody hid it but with this in mind he then goes on a tv show and says my dad weird relationship never said he's proud of me a woman from the village writes to him and says, you've got your dad completely wrong. He's so proud of you. I'd go around the house and he was always watching the Parliament channel to catch a glimpse of you. He just could never say it. You know, we both slightly welled up when he talked about it. He said, I didn't get the chance. He didn't get a chance to tell me he was proud of me, but he was. And I didn't get a chance to say I was proud of him, but I was too. So it's kind of incredibly sad and very raw. 
for someone who has been so private and tightly bound for most of his life. Tim, what do you think the significance is of this sort of much more detailed picture of, of Keir Starmer's early life, background, what's shaped him coming out at this point? How much do voters care about the backstory of our politicians, do you think? I think it's, it is a big change, isn't it? Because it's one of the criticisms of Starmer and, and his whole Labour operation is that nobody really knows sort of what they're for and, and what they're about. I guess, I mean... A lot of politicians have been very sort of open. I don't know, you know, it started with the Blairs, but, you know, this idea of a kind of a celebrity politician who people want to know what their kids are called and where they're going on holiday and all that sort of stuff, I think. And I guess he's sort of trying to lean into that a little bit. Um, Obviously, Cameron and Johnson in particular were quite open about talking about their families, particularly their own children as well. Starmer isn't the same type of person as those two, and perhaps he's trying to be in order to be more appealing. I think it's one of those things. I don't know how much, you know, the general public, I wait and see what kind of, you know, how many books, how your book sales do. I'm sure some people will. Selling out. Uh, (laughs) Selling out. There you go. But I think the main thing is it's affecting the people who then translate that messages. So obviously the journalists are all reading it and it's helping them to understand. And it is them who then communicate those kind of messages out in the way in which they talk about Starmer and help sort of shape that. And it's perfectly normal for an opposition leader to not be as well known as a, a prime minister. You know, most of the public don't really know most of the cabinet, let alone um, the sort of shadow cabinet. So that's perfectly normal. We've also, we've had uh, some more polling out this week that shows that Starmer is less unpopular. They're all, all politicians all end up in the, in the unpopularity stakes, but he's less unpopular than any of the figures before the 2019 general election. So he is in historical standards, not doing too badly on the polling, even though a lot of the focus groups and things still come out saying things like, don't really know what he stands for or, and so forth. So we'll wait and see what effect it has over the course of the, the year. Tom, one of the interesting things which has sort of come out from the coverage for me is, is this sort of conclusion which you draw from your book that Starmer isn't particularly ideological, that he's happy to sort of shift position where necessary, where the evidence changes. Is that fair? Is that a problem? It seems to be working for him. And I think it goes back to what we're saying about how politicians are rather unpopular brand or rather unpopular profession, but everyone keeps saying, why can't the Keir Starmer be more like a politician? <laughs> that seems counterintuitive to me. And yeah. what I found when I was writing this book, I was having to chisel quite a lot of this out of him. He didn't want to talk about his background, or he didn't want to talk about you know, his family or his friends, because that's not what real people do. And the more you talk about it and the more you make your kids part of your brand or your friends or the fact you play football part of your brand, they lose some of their magic for you. It's like watching the film of your favourite book. You can never see it again properly. And I think a lot of his apparent stiffness is an instinctive reluctance to protect not just his private life, and that's a rather standard term, but also the thing which is the essence of himself. And he doesn't want everything just to be part of politics because the reason he went into politics is to express the essence of himself. Do you see what I mean? There's a, there's, so when he's not ideological or he doesn't fit these patterns or templates of what a political leader is meant to be, I think he may actually be resembling the country rather than politicians. 
because real people are complicated. They're not two-dimensional caricatures. The problems this country faces are complicated, and so are the solutions, as the Institute for Government knows better than anyone else. And so an untypical, complicated politician may actually be better suited to the times we or the country we have than an attempt to impose straight lines. It's all like kind of, I sometimes think of it as like common law or our road system. It bends with the folds of the country. And Starmer does bend. He does change his mind. He does change course. But so do normal people. It's only politicians who are held to this weird standard of something you said 10 years ago you don't believe and therefore you must be a liar. I mean, it's just, it's just a crazy way to go about public discourse. Tim, do you think there are risks around being a relatively unpolitical person if you're thinking about becoming prime minister? So one of the things we always say is ministers and obviously at all levels of government, they need to know what they want to achieve, right? They need to have their sort of, you know, these are my three things. This is what I want people to focus on. And I think the risk of not having that is that you get buffeted by events and you sort of, you're always in reaction or recalibration mode and you're not able at the end of your time in office, because there's always a limit to people's time in office, to look back and say, I got that thing done because otherwise you just end up processing everything that happens. So I think there is a risk in not having that kind of North Star, but by what Tom is saying in terms of, you know, these are complicated times and there is a need to be adaptive. And I think as well, perhaps, you know, the last couple of years have been so sort of divided in politics in the UK, leave and remain, uh, obviously being the kind of big one, perhaps someone who is a little bit more centrist with a small C and willing to kind of find find ways across across different um, schools of thought might be a, a way forward. Tom, something that the IFG has written a lot about in recent years is the behaviour of ministers of standards and ethics in government. Um, and of course, what we've seen this week, and we'll come on to talk more about, has been some really big and important questions, I think, about how party leaders react to the behaviour, the things that are said by their colleagues and, and how they make those judgments about you know, what's acceptable, what's not in terms of public discourse. Do we have any sense, have you got any sense from the process of writing the book about how Starmer would approach these sorts of issues? Yes, I have. And I've interviewed both Keir Starmer himself and, and Sue Gray, who's his chief of staff, her first and possibly last interview as chief of staff because she doesn't like being in the, in the public domain. They are focusing a lot on public standards for two reasons. One of which is obvious, is that improving public standards is less of a tax on the public purse than improving living standards. The second is it's about him. And when I've talked before about him not having a sort of formal written ideology, that's not the same as not having values or being quite driven actually by those values. And I think he's always been pretty disgusted <laughs> by some of the stuff that goes on in politics. You know, he is a, he's a rules guy. You know, there's a lawyer friend of his who describes when they used to cycle into work and, you know, his friend would sail through the red light. Keir Starmer would stop. He, you know, he follows rules and he doesn't understand some of the standards he sees among his political colleagues. And, you know, he prosecuted MPs as chief prosecutor for, for fiddling their expenses. He doesn't like the kind of transactional behaviour he sees in Parliament sometimes. And so he is looking at a beefed up ministerial code. They are looking at a single umbrella body to cover all the different ethical bodies, including 
public appointments, peerages, and enforcing the ministerial code. But it's what he says about it that I thought was most interesting. There's something that's not been picked up in the book. He said no one took him seriously when he said he was going to root anti-Semitism out of the Labour Party until he sacked Rebecca Long-Bailey, who came second to him in the leadership contest from the Shadow Cabinet, then took the whip away from Jeremy Corbyn, his predecessor. No one's done that since Ramsay MacDonald. Then he says people woke up and thought, actually, I'm serious about it. And he says, no one takes me, will take me seriously when I say we are going to improve the standards of public life. And this is a really important part of rebuilding trust in politics and getting things done as a government until I sack someone senior for breaking our new ministerial code. So I then say, well, I mean, what if it's Rachel Reeves? You go, and her. If it's her, she'll be out. And people will know I mean business. And there's this thing about Keir Starmer, which sometimes takes me aback, is that he is a very decent bloke, I think. But he's really ruthless. He's really, really breathtakingly ruthless sometimes. And you don't see it, but you feel it. Mm. What do you make of that, Tim? I mean, I think I think that's exactly Right. You know, the the proof of this, Labour have made quite a big deal out of this issue. When Angela Rayner had this brief, um, she made a couple of speeches setting out the, the party's position on, on this, and it's been taken on by new shadow cabinet office ministers. And they clearly see it as a kind of point of divergence between them and the Conservatives. They want to use it as a kind of an electoral point. We are going to clean things up. We are more trustworthy. But as Tom says, 100%, the proof is in the pudding, or the proof of the pudding is in the eating, right? If if push comes to shove, what will Prime Minister Starmer do to uphold this new regime that, that they've trumpeted? And it's got to be something that ruthless to show that he means it. I think you can get a long way before that in improving the system. So we've put out a report earlier this week talking about the ways in which we think the system can be improved. Some of them are really quick things. Interesting to hear about this new ministerial code. I'd be interested to, to hear what they're thinking, what would be different. But, you know, a prime minister can do that in his first two or three weeks in the job, set out the new standards that he expects his ministers to abide by. There are also a bit more structural things, so being more transparent, being more open about exactly who ministers are meeting and so on and so forth, which we think are very sensible. But no matter what reforms you make to the system, it's about behaviours and cultures. And it's that kind of decisive action which is going to change the culture. And I think under previous prime ministers, particularly under Boris Johnson, you know, whenever his senior ministers were criticised, he defended them. He always, you know, the throw the arms around the pritster when Priti Patel was, was accused of bullying. That kind of attitude is part of what has set the expectations quite low that anyone in politics is held to account. And if Starmer does things very differently, then I think that will shift the debate. And from all your conversations, Tom, have you got much sense of whether uh, Keir Starmer and the Labour Party are, are thinking about innovating about the way they run government once they come in? Obviously, a subject close to the heart of the IFG. Yeah, they've talked about mission-led government being a change in the way you do government. And this being quite a radical reform, they've talked about devolving power not just to places, but to expertise and experience. They talk about bringing people into these cross-cutting mission boards. They've now got to the rubber hits the road point of, we well, can't bring everyone in. Who are you going to bring in? How's the system going to work? Who's going to take the decision? I'm hearing about, I mean, Sue Gray says in her interview for my book about this single point of delivery. I suspect it's going to be somewhere between number 10, number 11, and the cabinet office. They've talked about quads, which is a system they had in the coalition between Conservatives and Liberal Democrats, which was a decision-making body, which was Osborne, Alexander, Clegg, and Cameron, wasn't it? And 
I think a similar quad for Labour, and it's not a decision, but I think it's a model they're looking at, would obviously be Starmer, Reeves, Rayner, and I suspect Pat McFadden. But it's not just going to be cabinet office. It's not just going to be Downing Street. It's bigger and more encompassing than that. Delivering these missions is the central sole purpose, not sole, but central purpose of any incoming Labour government. Well, we certainly hope they'll be looking at the conclusions of our Centre Commission out on the 11th of March. I think like all sensible people, they are. Tom, having written this book, do you have any sense of the type of Prime Minister Starmer would be if he won the election? Can you draw any analogies with Prime Minister's past? I always think analogies with Prime Minister's past is a sort of Westminster game, which, you know, there may be be, (laughs) points of navigation, but, you know, no two prime ministers are the same, and I, I think it's always slightly invidious to compare sort of Starmer with Blair or Blair with you know like, that's different, and they're different times and different challenges. What I think is interesting is is the way people write and talk about Starmer shows that they we're sort of set in a particular media trope by which politicians are meant to have these tight easily understood backstories, this big, grandiose vision which will solve everything, then some easily digestible soundbite policies. And the world's not like that, and our problems aren't like that. And so most politicians, I think, have sort of gotten into the habit of defining themselves primarily as radical and, if necessary, tempered by pragmatism. Where Starmer's approach is almost dyslexic to most political journalists, in that he's primarily pragmatic, if necessarily tempered by radicalism. So what that means is there's never a big bang moment where here it is, the big vision, will he succeed or fail? It's a series of steps becoming progressively more radical as he exhausts more straightforward options. And half the journalists have turned their back, and before they know it, He's got somewhere, while the people they've been watching making these grandiose speeches have nothing left but their pretty words. And so it's a different approach to government. This idea of missions as a sort of sorting mechanism for a series of policies rather than a single policy which will solve everything, I think is really interesting. I mean, I think a lot more work needs to be done on how they deliver it, and we can talk about that. But as a, as a, set of principles about where you want to get to, to guide a government, I think they're very interesting, particularly in a period when there isn't very much money to spend. Kath, do you think that incremental pragmatism building towards a sort of outcome you want to achieve is going to work electorally? I mean, that's the, the key question to all of it. And when you think about political biographies of leaders of parties, they fall into two categories, the ones that became prime minister and the ones that didn't. And the ones that didn't, the only thing they are judged on is not winning the election. So I, I take all of Tom's points, but ultimately, if Starmer wins the election, then yes, all that you're talking about is relevant and what kind of prime minister he is, you know, all this hinterland will be part of that and he'll be judged completely differently. And, you know, we may see not, you know, again, cliches, the real Starmer standing up or anything like that, but he may be in a more comfortable environment and not under the same sorts of pressures that a leader of the opposition is. You're making a case for a new edition of biography in one year, two years, three years. Well, I mean, I leave that to you. I'm sure 
sure I'm sure other people will be on the bandwagon as well. But that but that's the point. But if he doesn't win the election, then all these questions that you're talking about and that incredible pressure on charisma and visions and you know the tactics and, and all the rest of it will still be alive because that is ultimately all that the leaders of the opposition get get judged on so it is still a massive kind of moment for them and it is why any opposition is incredibly paranoid no matter how great their lead that it could all fall apart and they could all lose it and particularly for labor to whom that has happened many times in the past so come back to us and we'll do another podcast in a year or two's <laughs> time and then reflect back on what we said if he wins if he hmm. wins Let's turn to the story of the week now, which seems to centre around Lee Anderson, but also Liz Truss and Suella Braverman, and the Watchdale by-election, the result of which will emerge a few hours after we finish recording today. And that's the increasingly divisive language that politicians are using, presumably because they see electoral advantage in doing so, and the way in which their party leaders respond. Tom, you have been a political journalist for many years. Does this feel new to you or is it just more of the same? It's a quantitative difference that has become a qualitative difference. Politics has changed and become more polarised progressively over the last few decades to the point now that I think parts of it are becoming unrecognisable. Some, I think the Conservative Party is unrecognisable from what it once was. I think it's completely looking now towards a fairly narrow base of its electorate, which is dragging it off into the badlands of <laughs> fringes of politics. And it does matter how parties are structured. So, you know, I think Keir Starmer's made mistakes as Labour leader. But what's interesting is how he is willing to change his mind and correct mistakes. And part of that was how he corrected I think an earlier error about trying to unite the party wasn't working, so he corrected that, and he made some big reforms of the party. It's interesting in his relationship with Corbyn, in that both of them are slightly old-fashioned characters in a way, in that I've gone through all the comments they've made about each other, and they don't attack each other personally, not once. The people around them do, say the most awful things about them. But both Corbyn and Starmer are rather respectful. It's actually rather, you know, broke the rules, didn't break the rule, I, I did break it. You know, it's that. It's not, you're an awful person. The only person who I found that Keir Starmer really starts using adjectives about is Boris Johnson. Because they are chalk and cheese. And he loathes him. He's learned to loathe him. Because he doesn't respect the rules. He doesn't respect the standards. He doesn't respect the institutions. He doesn't respect democracy. And it's, you know, it's interesting, his 2021 conference speech, he said he's not a bad person, just a trivial one. By 2022, he's going, he's bad. <laughs> I would push back on that a little bit. I think you saw from PMQs this week, both that they were making personal attacks. I mean, certainly Sunak made a very personal attack on Keir Starmer, and both of them were attacking each other's party as if they were the, the worst, the Conservatives' Islamophobia or anti-Muslimness, depending on which definition the government chooses to talk about. And similarly, Sunak going again and again on anti-Semitism on the Corbyn leadership and so forth. It felt very personal. And also, which is frustrating, 
Sunak talked this week about needing to calm things out, take the heat out of the, the language. Starmer has talked a lot about wanting a better kind of politics. And yet it's that inflammatory language, it is that raising of the temperature at PMQs, which drives a lot of the other behaviour that other politicians will do. They are emulating their leaders. So I know that PMQs is not going to turn into some kind of nice, calm, you know, debating forum. But at the same time, it's, it is those kind of attacks that actually create the sort of heat that then you see across social media, you see in this sort of drive for populism, and you see in a lot of the examples of things that we've we've talked about or that we've we've been seeing in the last week. Tom, what do you make of the Lee Anderson row this week? The fascinating thing about Lee Anderson is he once worked in Gloria de Piero's Labour Party office where James Graham, the playwright, was an intern writing his play about, you know, MP's office. So Lee Anderson has become this caricature and he's got his GB News show and he plays up to it. And the media want you to become this caricature. I don't know Lee Anderson. I suspect he's almost become a sort of distorted version of himself through what the media have done to him. And of course... He should be chucked out of the Conservative Party for what he said, if the Conservative Party has any boundaries and borders. But I just think this sort of shrillness and hyperbole and polarisation, which the media feeds into all the time and expects of politicians, whether they're left or the right, is making a very difficult job of governing this country worse. And Tom, um, Watchdale, what do you make of how Labour has approached this one, um, ending up without a candidate, but with three former Labour uh, candidates on the ballot. What do you think Keir Starmer will have taken away from it? He'll be furious. In fact, I know he's furious because I've spoken to him about it. It's an unforced error. You know, he likes a football analogy. And we spent quite a lot of time discussing whether it's like you're winning 4-0 and you then score an own goal, so it's 4-1, or whether it's actually now 4-2, and whether that's better to defend a 4-2 or 2-0 lead. Um, but he, yeah, he, and he screwed up himself in that he shouldn't have a back, back to let Aziz stand after the first comments were published. But again, I think the way he corrected the mistake is the most interesting thing. Too many politicians, when they make a mistake, double down behind it because they can't afford to appear to change their mind. I quite like the way Keir Starmer acknowledges, right, I screwed up there. What do I do to fix it? What do I learn from this? How do we prevent it ever happening again? That's a rational way to manage rather than we will not acknowledge any failings ever. I am not infallible. I am the great leader. That's not That's not how you should run an organisation. And... What's impressive about his leadership, I think, is he's learnt and adapted to circumstances. So when people complain about him changing his mind on a policy, I think that's a sign of him adapting and learning rather than, in the pejorative phrase, flip-flopping around. I think that's really interesting. And I think we agree to a certain extent, you know, we are not always jumping on the bandwagon of criticising governments when they U-turn. Sometimes it is important to learn from mistakes and change your approach. At the same time, going back to what I said earlier, I think it really matters to have what is your guiding principle? What is it you're trying to achieve? And 
the civil service, what they really want from ministers is people who know what they want. They know why they're in government and what it is they're about. And if you're always sort of dodging and weaving and kind of adapting all the time, then actually you run the risk, again, of not achieving what you're trying to do. You run the risk of um, spending so much time kind of calibrating, you're not actually able to set out that agenda. I mean, the other thing is that going back to the point about standards and if you're doing this as prime minister, yes, it is right to take time and make sure a decision is right. And we've seen, again, Rishi Sunak do that over some of the decisions that he's had to make about his ministers, particularly uh, over Dominic Raab. But again, that's one of the things that troubles the public when it feels like something bad has happened and it takes a long while. And in today's world, that means taking a few hours, mm. let alone days, weeks and months. Mm. So I think, again, if, if supposedly Starmer is going to embody a different approach to this, he's also going to have to think about how is he going to make decisions? And sometimes with insufficient information mm, yeah. in order to look like he is being decisive. And sometimes he might get those decisions wrong. I've been writing this week about just how important those decisions are for political parties, because at the end of the day, and as we've been seeing this week, I think uh, it's really up to them to set the terms of our political discourse, of what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. And that's not just about words. And, you know, some of the commentary this week has been, you know, the words are not what's important. We've got to focus on actual threats that people perceive. But actually, I think there's really good evidence that political language can feed directly into physical threats, particularly to our politicians. So I think that's uh, far too simplistic a response. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Your book is, of course, available in all good bookshops now. Good luck with it. It's probably in some bad ones too. Just try any of them. <laughs> but go and buy the book. No such yeah. thing as a bad bookshop. Yeah. <laughs> Let's turn our attention now to the week ahead. The budget, a pre-election budget, takes place on Wednesday and Jeremy Hunt is no doubt set to declare that he has triumphantly met his fiscal rules. Well, a new IFG paper out today has some strong views about that one. And one of its authors, Ollie Bartram, joins us now. Hi, Ollie. Hi, Hannah. Quick explainer, please. What is a fiscal framework? OK, well, I think I should start with fiscal policy which uh, is essentially how government manages the overall levels of taxation, spending and borrowing. And the fiscal framework is everything that underpins how that policy is then made. So that includes actors and institutions. So we've got the Treasury and the Chancellor as the ultimate decision makers. We've got the OBR as the assessor and the watchdog and the ONS as the producer of statistics and many more. The framework also includes the processes, rules, norms and conventions that govern how that policy is made. So we're talking about things like the budget and spending review processes, pieces of relevant legislation like the Charter for Budget Responsibility and, of course, fiscal rules. Yes, fiscal rules. That's that's what this paper's all about. What are they and who sets them? So our current set of fiscal rules, I think it's the ninth set since 2010. We change our fiscal rules more than any other advanced economy. More than housing ministers? No. Maybe not quite. Not <laughs> quite. <laughs> 15 of them since 2010, so not, not quite as uh, many, but getting there. There we go. Um, so we currently have three fiscal rules. The main one, the sort of primary fiscal rule, is that debt should be on course to fall, but not over the course of the forecast. It only needs to fall between the fourth and the fifth years. So the debt can increase and is forecast to increase in every year 
in the forecast, years one, two, three, and four, but it falls in the final year. So the government, at least in November, was on track to meet that. And it doesn't have to fall back down to where you were. It could be just a tiny dip. No, no. It can just be a very, very, very small dip. So yes, very strange, very odd. Uh, I think the reason we have that rule is probably that it's the loosest one that you can have that still has the two words debt falling somewhere in the name. We have another one that says public sector borrowing should not exceed 3% of GDP again in five years time. And we also have some rules around welfare spending uh, staying below a, a cap. The Treasury and Chancellor also say they will consider five other measures of things like public sector net worth and debt servicing costs, but we don't have specific rules on those. And who judges if the government is meeting these rules? So since 2010, the Office for Budget Responsibility has been the sort of judge on whether the government is on track to meet its rules. It also produces forecasts completely independent of government, of the economy and the main fiscal aggregates that rules are based on. And that's that's a sort of great system. And the OBR has a greater level of independence than many similar institutions in other countries. Uh, it's, it's quite strong in that respect. However, it must make its judgment on the basis of stated government policy. Now, that's fine if government is being specific about what that policy is and how it's going to achieve it, but they're not at the moment. And the biggest offender at the moment is the government's plans for spending. So we only know what is being spent at a department level until March next year, March 2025. Beyond that, the government's just penciled in totals for day-to-day spending and capital spending. Now, those penciled-in totals imply very large cuts to department-level spending, which is fine if you spell out how you're going to achieve them, but the government hasn't. And in fact, where it has set out ambitions for public spending, these tend to imply increases rather than decreases. So specifically around defence and development, the current government has ambitions to increase spending there. So although the OBR has sort of set out some of the implications of these buried deep in its reports and the chair has told MPs that the Treasury spending plans are beyond fiction, it must still, you know, at the top of its reports and in its formal assessment of government fiscal performance, say that the rules are being met because they have to take the Chancellor's word for it. So an important institution, as you say, stronger than in many other countries, but at the end of the day, does it count for much? So the formal assessment, I think, doesn't, given the level of fiction in the sort of policies that it is based on. Like I said, the OBR does lots of great commentary around that, but there isn't the main focus on budget day. They have to take Um, the government's word, for example, that it always says that it's going to put up fuel duty. Yeah, yeah. For 15 years, is it? Yeah, exactly. And I think it's helpful to draw a comparison with similar institutions that we've set up to monitor and assess government performance. So like the Climate Change Committee, for example. The Climate Change Committee doesn't just take our net zero target as given and say, well, that's government policy, therefore government's meeting it. That's sort of what we're doing with fiscal policy. The CCC demands evidence that the government is actually going to achieve what it says it's going to achieve, and it demands detail. But we don't 
get the OBR to do the same thing with the Treasury. Kath, if the fiscal rules aren't working, why is Labour sticking so close to these spending plans, which, as Ollie said, the government has set out, but which seem, well, implausible is a politest yeah, way of I mean, putting it. It's, it's a deep, deep sort of truism within our politics that for many years... Labour have felt that they needed to uh, stick to where the Conservatives were on the economy. I mean, basically, it all comes down to this sort of historic expectation that Labour would do better on public polling on, you know, trust in managing our public services and the Conservatives always seen as the party of the economy. And it goes back to uh, 1970s Labour governments, the 1992 general election when the Conservatives had this Labour tax bombshell poster campaign that was felt to hit uh, Labour very hard. So uh, that is the reason why, you know, the Gordon Brown came in sticking to Conservative spending plans. Uh, it is a reason why, again, they want to be seen as being secure on the economy. And, you know, the public aren't going to understand, are we still going to be secure on it, but we're going to slightly change our plans for it? Or is that's what they think? So they stick to it. And I mean, in a sense, it's working. We've seen since the trust government that Labour have been doing well in terms of trust on the economy. They've often been beating the Conservatives on that score, which is, a, you know, a worrying issue from the Conservatives. It, it all comes down to them, what are you trying to fight the election over, which is why there's this debate of, are the Conservatives going to try and fight it on other issues, the sort of culture issues we've just been talking about rather than fighting it on the economy, which is usually their bread and butter. So that's the sort of deep-seated reasons behind it. If in government, they might decide to do something different. All depends how the economy goes between then and now. But right now, it's just about the general election. And Ollie, our paper has recommendations for whoever wins the election should do about fiscal rules. Tell us about those. Sure. Um, so I should say that fiscal fiction is only one of six problems we identify with fiscal <laughs> oh, policy no. making. We could be here sometime. I, I won't. I won't tell you about all the others. People can people can look up the paper to to read more about them. But I think in terms of what we think should change, there are three sort of buckets of things that we think need to happen. And I should start by saying that we don't think the problem is the rules themselves. Uh, people often blame the specific form of rule that we use for how it incentivizes decision making and that sort of thing. And there are so many papers out there that propose another set of fiscal rules. But we think the problems lie deeper in that framework that we were discussing earlier. And that's where our recommendations center. So I think first, decision making needs to be slower and more strategic. So we repeat the IFG classic that there should be one fiscal event a year. That sounds like a small thing, but you're giving the Treasury ministers and officials an extra six months to do serious long-term policy work. We think that is hugely significant, actually. The OBR should also be given greater flexibility to assess the, assess the quality of fiscal policy making. That would reduce the incentives for chancellors to fine tune and get a pass rather than a fail in the sort of very formal uh, way of assessing fiscal rules that we've set up. I think the second bucket of things is that the fiscal framework needs to encourage a focus on the long term. People often criticise fiscal rules for encouraging short term decisions. That is right, but our whole framework encourages short-term decisions. So we need to treat investment differently. We need to focus more on measures like net worth as as capturing the, the effect of fiscal policy. And we need to do more analysis on what the long-term implications of, 
of our fiscal decisions are. And the final one is that we just have to end this fiscal fiction nonsense. It just makes a mockery of the fiscal framework and completely undermines its original purpose. It's possible because governments pencil in spending plans. We think they should just set out the detail do long-term spending reviews and do them on a rolling basis so we always have certainty. If not, the OBR should be much more clear about what they imply. I mean, Labour are going to have to think about this kind of stuff anyway if they get into government because at the moment you've got the Conservatives approaching a budget where they might not be in government. There's been a lot of talk about laying traps for Mm. for Labour and so forth. But it is easier to pencil in cut down the line to get the numbers that you need now if you know you're not going to be the one that have to deliver the bad news later. But if you are Labour, you come in, you've got five years and then you're looking at another election that you want to win, you need to think about how you're planning that whole five-year period so suddenly the fiscal rules become very real uh, and the the economic inheritance that they're facing means that the cuts to public services that the current position implies are going to be a massive problem for them that they will have to figure out how to fix. So they are going to have to think more deeply about not just the fiscal framework as a way of like Hmm. doing some sort of smart moves to get you the budget that you want to do, but actually thinking about how to plan for spending over a five-year period in a way that makes a difference to public services. Yeah, I mean, that's completely right. And this fiction will have to end when the next government does a multi-year spending review because they will have to set out exactly what they're going to spend and try to reconcile that with their tax and borrowing plans. And it's going to be pretty horrible in terms of the choices and trade-offs that have to be made that needs to be done but we think that you know these reforms to the fiscal framework should help us from getting into this mess again where so much of you know our fiscal policy is unspecified based on fiction and this then gets you into that situation where you have to make these really really horrible choices well thank you so much ollie more Excellent RFG recommendations that all parties should be reflecting on ahead of the election. And that's it for today. Thank you to Kath Haddon, Ollie Bartram, Tim Durrant, and especially to Tom Baldwin. Thank you all for listening to this episode. You can find all our podcasts, including our brilliant new six-part series, Preparing for Power, at Acast, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And a quick plug now for the Expert Factor, it's Budget Preview Special. Remember to subscribe and do please leave us a review. Ollie's paper on fiscal frameworks is out now. You can find it on our website along with Ollie and the team's great piece setting out what to look for in the budget. We've also got some exciting IFG events coming up, including our Centre Commission launch with John Major and Gordon Brown. You can find out more about all those events on our website and do sign up. Happy pre-budget weekend, everyone. <laughs>